Hi, I'm Spencer Krauss. I've been building robots for over 20 years. In that time, I've seen a lot of interesting things and I've heard a lot of interesting stories. Collaborative with Spencer Krauss is a place where my colleagues and I can relax, have a drink, and talk about some of the crazier things we've seen at work and some of the experiences we've had that have gotten us to where we are today. Subscribe today to join the collaboration. Welcome to the Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Krauss. Our guest today is Mohammed Naji. Mohammed is the CEO of Neuroville, which is a company that's using a very unique approach to program robots. Mohammed, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And uh, sorry for the tech issues we suffered no earlier. No problem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, you're a match. <laughs> so, uh, Noraville is, I guess, I'm, I don't even, I've never seen what you're doing before. So, can you explain sort of what it is for the listeners? Sure, of course. So, in short, we are building brains for robots. And um, a little bit longer answer is that we are building technologies that enables the creation of safe and capable robots. We're using techniques from uh, cutting edge technologies of the day, but the, the main difference of what we're doing is that we're using neuroscience principles yep. to build uh, control systems for robots. Yeah, and I came to your office because you told me that on LinkedIn, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> this is either really awesome or a scam. <laughs> so, Dark magic. Yeah, exactly. And that, well, that's exactly what it is. So when I when I came, it was it was really interesting because there's all these different variables that you guys manipulate, and the behavior almost comes off as emergent. Um, like it'll it'll move in a way based on like the levels on the inputs, and I don't know. Like I said, it's like nothing I've ever seen before, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly where that applies. But I. It's novel for sure. I mean, I've never, ever seen that anywhere else. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So just so many things that has to come together to, to make it work. But um, at the core, what you're doing, you're using spiky neural networks. So that has been um, under development for, for decades, and it's nothing new. Okay. But some of the techniques that you're using that are novel is that you're using... Um, a genome data structure that actually encodes features of the brain. And we are going through a developmental process that develops the brain in stages. So we are accounting for temporal encoding and we are accounting for the, the element of time. Uh, we are enabling robots to be able to have lifelong learning. And uh, neuroplasticity, for example, plays a big role in teaching robot different yeah. traits. And so neuroplasticity for people listening uh, in a person is like the ability to change your brain by learning something. Yes, our, our brains are plastic and constantly changing and the, the connection between neurons are uh, not constant. So as we grow up, uh, the number of neurons change, the number of connections between neurons change and the, the strength of connectivity between neurons are changing all the time. So, so how do you represent that in your in your code base? I mean, it's, I guess I can understand like coefficients maybe representing the strength of connection, but to the extent that you can change the actual connections, I mean, that seems incredibly challenging to do. 
there's a lot of dynamics, of course, and um, we have a proprietary data structure that we've created that captures the essence of the brain. We call it the connectome. So we, we start from a genome and then we end up with a connectome. That connectome captures the essence of the brain in terms of all the uh, neurons and synapses and all the weight, weights and other parameters that are involved. And uh, similar to the biological brain, there are so many physiological processes that are in play in our system. Like yeah. we have concept of neurodegeneracy, for example. We have uh, neurons leaking uh, <laughs> membrane potential. Um, so all but that's these, a real thing. Yes. So so that okay. that's inspired from how the neurons work. Yeah. And um, they're using that. What does a neuron leaking actually look like? So the so the membrane, yeah so it's yeah. ions basically coming out of the membrane of the neuron so so the um, the membrane body that a neuron has uh, it contains a lot of ions coming in and out and um, we simulate that in our this in is our the system. axon that you're referring to with the no no the actual uh, oh soma, the, the, the nucleus yeah the the main part of the the, the main body of the neuron, basically. So, so the, the fluctuations of the, so as the postsynaptic potentials, like the surrounding neurons, they fire, they influence the membrane potential of a target neuron. And when it reaches a specific threshold, it fires. And that signal travels through the axon and then reaches to downstream neurons. Yeah. Yes. and. But when um, it leaks, you're saying it's it's like a like a short circuit almost, like the cell body is somehow leaking and affecting an adjacent neuron. Uh, so so basically, the membrane potential of the neuron over time it it leaks the the potential that it has. So so if you um, if you have other neurons that excite, for example, your target neuron, if you leave it alone, it would eventually leak out that potential that it has in reserve. Oh, like any battery in the world. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Exactly the same. That's interesting. So that, that's one of the dynamics that come into play. And um, what we focus on is that we build neuronal circuits. We build mini neuronal circuits that uh, is another unique aspect of what we do that you can look at them as building blocks. So we're building individual um, gates, for example, like, like AND gate, NOR gate, OR gate. So you can put these together to build more complex uh, neuronal circuits. Interesting. And they can they can act. Are these like explicitly and nor or or are these something different dissimilar that you've exact same okay. behavior? Uh, Interesting. As the, like digital circuits, but a different uh, architecture. The architecture is different. Yes. So so we retrofit that basically to um, work in our environment basically and basically only neurons and connections between them represent those uh, logic gates. And they, they become building blocks for building uh, more complex circuits. That's interesting. So you could literally replicate um, TTL logic with your system, but you're just doing it a different way architecturally. Yes, yes. And you can take advantage of spike neural networks because um, they're very efficient in terms of their behavior, and um, there are technologies that they're emerging, like the neuromorphic computing. And um, what's that? Neuromorphic computing is like a specialized hardware that simulates event-based 
uh, environment, like neurons firing, basically. Yeah. So it gets at, to that time horizon you were talking about. Core uses Membrister technology, and um, you can simulate neuron spikes and firing in a hardware level. So you can have chipsets that you can have millions of cores representing different neurons, and that would be a very efficient way to simulate something highly parallel. One of the challenges that we have with uh, state-of-the-art chipsets are that you have with CPUs, for example, you have hundreds of cores and GPUs like thousands of cores, but that's a, a, an important limit in terms of how many things you can process in parallel. And um, Can you serialize with your framework or do you need that's to have what the parallelization? We're doing okay. also, yes. That's interesting. Because it would become impossible to, to be able to do something that the biological brain does. Like, we have billions of neurons, 100 billion neurons approximately, and um, if you account for 5%, 10% of them firing at the same time, still Quite a very, large very number. large number, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So that, that is one of the biggest challenges that we It's easy face. math, right? It's 5 to 10 billion. <laughs> so, but... On the bright side, of course, the, the speed that we have, uh, the clock speed that we have in, in digital world, uh, we can take advantage of the speed and then by serialization. But so you're virtualizing and the serialization comes from that, but you're really trying to model parallel behavior? It becomes really complex in terms of how you can break things down that some processing that is happening in parallel you can convert it to a serial, okay, uh, and then you can kind of have a behavior that resembles something parallel. parallel. So the the so. brain itself doesn't have the ability to serialize. It sounds like like the brain is a parallel thing. Well, it's like a CPU that has like hundred billion cores. Like that. That's what our brain is. Like each individual neuron acts as an independent core that they can fire. Yeah, it sounds uh, like it's all parallel, and it's all parallel, and um, that's part of where the power comes from, but. That's interesting. Um, and I say this as a total idiot when it comes to like neuroscience. So no, no, it's, it's amazing how here. much we don't know. And um, since I started to learn about neuroscience, um, I've been fascinated about how much we don't know. Like I've been talking to so many scholars and researchers that they've been devoting like decades of their time studying neuroscience. And they still, when you talk with them, um, they're humble enough to say they don't know much. Just <laughs> every day we're learning something new about the brain. And of course, that, that's one of the challenges that we're facing, that we are getting inspirations from something that we don't know enough about. So we are very careful to not try to imitate the brain, but that's to be inspired by it. And that, that's something that like a fine line wise. to walk. <laughs> <laughs> Theoretically, at least, that seems like the right way to do it. Right. So that's, that's cool. Yeah, it's very exciting, kind of connecting neuroscience and robotics and, of course, computer science is the glue between them. Um, yeah. But a big part of it is building the interfaces. Like, um, a lot of our focus is on creating the interfaces between, of course, the from the robotics perspective, you need to be able to process sensory information. You, be, you need to be able to have motor demand. So we need to translate sensory information to spikes. And the spikes gets into the artificial brain that we have. 
and then it gets processed in the system and at the end it translates back to some motor commands and kind of goes back so we're pretty much building the central nervous system and the peripheral network nervous system for robots that's really cool yeah and i mean seeing like i said the demo i saw at your facility like it was it was unlike anything i'd seen before i mean you were the middle layer to me was totally abstract. Well, not totally abstract, but like just dissimilar to what I've seen. And so I'm, I'm, I'm impressed, confused, <laughs> and looking for meaning all at the same time. <laughs> it's been um, certainly a journey for us because um, from the beginning, we didn't have the kind of foresight in terms of how everything is going to turn out. But yeah. We, we had some principles that, that we tried to follow in terms of that getting inspiration from the brain but not imitating it. Yeah. Also, uh, simplicity in terms of our approach. Because what we are doing, we are building a platform that people can use to be able to develop these control systems for robots. Yeah. And um, of course, we will be using that platform as well to be able to provide services to our customers. And uh, it is crucial for such a complex platform to have a very simple interface to, to interact with, to be able to facilitate the, the creation of these complex um, structures. So, yeah. so that, that has been one of the considerations to make sure that we, we put that forefront and make sure that we build it um, with as much simplicity as possible. And I think that's a great thing to do when you're designing anything. <laughs> so I, I commend you, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but I, I do have another question, which is why look to the brain for inspiration as opposed to, I mean, it, it sounds like you're like a classically trained computer scientist, if I'm understanding correctly. Yes. Okay. Yes. My primary education has been in computer science. So I, I did my undergrad degree in computer science and then proceeded to never code again for like the last decade. <laughs> but, I, I have some of the basic training and none of it is neurological in nature. And so like, why, why go that line? Like what made you want to want to sprint in that direction? That is a great question. So Thanks. basically there's a lot of deficiencies um, uh, currently in the state of the art technology. Like you see with the deep learning techniques or technologies of the day that they can do amazing things. You can, um, of course, you see every day something new comes out that you can, you can generate text and audio and video and everything. Um, but there's still a big element missing, and that's having sensations, to be able to understand things, feel things, and to be able to reason, to be able to uh, understand the consequence of things, and to be able to understand the the meaning of actions what what they can result into so a lot of those things has been already solved by the biological systems as yeah. we've evolved over time of course uh, we had to fight to be able to live another day and a lot of those has has built this very complex system that we have as our brain to to be able to process that very effectively so um we looked at the best example that the nature has provided and thought using the 
discoveries of the day in terms of some of the advancements in hardware, in terms of software, in terms of infrastructure. Um, we found that we are in an era that enables us to actually be able to leverage a lot of those inspirations and build a system that potentially could behave similar to a biological brain. And, and from the robotics perspective, there's a lot of value in that. Safety is the, is the most important one, that um, a lot of people are concerned about the, the speed of uh, technology in terms of how fast it's growing and um, robots becoming more powerful and faster and capable, but how safe are they? And um, one of the areas that we're focusing heavily is that how can we have a safe AI that is explainable? And that, that's hence some of these circuits that we are designing that play a role in terms of the building blocks to be able to actually explain like a digital circuit, how the brain of that robot is working. I'm interested. And um, as, even though we can make it as complex as you, as you can imagine, it's going to be highly, highly modular in one sense. And we, we are taking steps to make it as explainable as possible by, by developing techniques to be able to monitor that brain. So, so we actually created a tool that kind of resembles like, a, like an fMRI machine. Like given that we are using brain uh, inspirations, uh, the best analogy is like an fMRI machine that you can you can Presumably it's a piece of software though. Yes, yes. So, okay. so we're using a game engine for that. Oh, cool. And we're using a game engine, a 3D, uh, 3D game environment that it visualizes the brain structures. Everything we have is like cortical structures. Is that what I saw the other day? Or is yes. That... Okay, cool. Yes. So, <laughs> so that, that's what you saw, but it was an earlier version of it. it it's come a long way. Interesting. Uh, we made be a lot cool of cool to take another site and... visit one of these days. Sure, of course. Thank you, buddy. Um, but yes, yeah, so that, that proved to be extremely valuable in, in our kind of progress because we can visualize the, the brain in real time, the brain of the robot. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, we can stimulate different regions of the brain. So well, fMRI so imagine, machine doesn't do that. Exactly. So, <laughs> so that, that, of course, helps a lot in terms of understanding that what happens if this specific region of the brain gets activated or not get activated and kind of you can you can you can watch in real time like the progression of the, the information throughout the system and you can make change in real time and yeah. you can you can uh, see the impact of it so a lot of the interests that we did actually are from neuroscientists that um, they're fascinated about the um, the applied aspects of, of what we're doing and how it can translate to, to some tangible results, uh, which we've been very fortunate about kind of that kind of interest. So is that um, like a potential market for this, is to, to model the actual brain by way of your software packages? Yes, so even though what we're doing, I should be very clear that uh, because of that, using inspirations but imitation and not imitating, there's a lot of differences, of course. Like, the medium that we are using, of course, is a digital environment. We are not in a biological environment. Uh, so inherently, we are talking about two different systems. And um, there are some shortcuts that we are taking to make sure that we 
the brain that you're designing is efficient. And also the other problem that we discussed about the the number of cores and neurons. And you're not going to have 100 billion cores? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eventually, I think we'll get there yeah, as a society. So but, <laughs> but so, so because of all those things, of course, there's a lot of differences. But on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of chances that actually you can you can test different hypotheses from, from systems neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience. Yeah. You can test some of those things with our system. And um, our first release actually is going to be uh, intended for, for that market, to be able to provide a platform for enthusiasts in, in neuroscience and uh, robotics space as neuro-robotics platform that you can use to be able to test different hypotheses against actual, um, either a virtual, like a virtual robot or a physical robot. It almost seems like you're studying a different thing. So like, it's not the brain that you're studying, but you've created a sort of virtual brain by way of, you know, Norville's software, right? And so it almost seems like for somebody that's interesting and it, it would be fun to probe that and see how it responds to different things and it's actually really fun. Like, yeah. like um, I think one of the one of the markets or um, spaces that can use it is for entertainment and and education. Um, it's very interactive, and um, to be able to put these things together like Lego pieces, and to be able to achieve something functional, you can you can look at it from the educational value perspective that. You can, you can learn about neuroscience principles. You can put these things. Um, you can use your intuition and logic, reasoning to be able to build things pieces by pieces and, and see it uh, in real time how it impacts something like a robot. So um, that, that kind of fun element of it, um, we're hoping that that would play a big role in terms of the adoption of our yeah. solution. Yeah, I actually could see that market doing well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, no, thank you. You know, I think it. I think it fits. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's fun. So how did? I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, go ahead. I was gonna say, how did you end up getting into computer science, like in the first place? Like, how how did you come down this road and and end up in a position where you got here? But even before then, that's not that's too complicated. No, no. Uh, I guess it takes me back. To, to my childhood, I guess. Um, I was always curious about different things, and um, I started with a Commodore 64. Are you serious? Uh, yes. Wait, how old are you? <laughs> I'm that old. <laughs> not, not to, like, you know, be ageist, but, like... No, I'm 42. Okay, cool. So you're not that old. Yeah. yeah I'm but, 34. I'm, I'm, you know, it's not that much of a difference. Yeah, but, um, yeah, Commodore was, like, uh, maybe one of the first kind of uh, I had friends with C64s, but... but it would be like a thing you had, like off to the side. Like that's that's really cool. It was fun. Like it was basic programming. Yep. And, um, and, and you used it by programming in basic. Yeah, that was the interface, to right? Record your program on, like with a cassette. I don't remember the cassette. So what I remember is it was like you used it by writing basic, and it had like the lines were numbered, and you could use go to statements to go to yes, different lines. Yes, exactly, exactly. And. It, it, basic was the user interface like it, it it 
you had to program basic to interact with it which was a weird way if i recall correctly when you wanted to load a game actually you needed to use some some very basic command to load your game like um i think when you load it yes so when you turn it on i think it was going to basic i i I grew up in scroll hill in pittsburgh but i had a friend in manhattan who had a c64 in a closet of the Manhattan place. And when we go there, we go use the C64. And I remember that actually, now that I'm thinking yeah. about it. It was fun, it was fun. But yeah. but that got me into computers and kind of programming and learning about different things. And kind of one thing led to, to, the, to, to, to another thing. Um, it was interesting. So actually I started my bachelor's uh, in civil engineering. Oh, that is interesting. And so. Yes. <laughs> Why would you do a thing like that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, so the education system, unfortunately, I guess um, it was very competitive. And um, I just got admitted into civil engineering program and I just didn't want to waste time and uh, wanted to continue. Where were you going to school that, that you had to deal with that? So I grew up in Iran. Okay. And um, the, the school system is very competitive and yeah. there's, a, there's a national exam that you need to go through to be able to get admitted to, to, the, to the school. And, and then um, you get admitted into a certain program, like based on... So you go through, basically you make choices in terms okay. of what, what, prog- what um, different um, programs you, you're interested to get into. And at that point, I, I had interest in civil engineering, I had interest in computer science, but yeah. I was kind of conflicted, was not sure really what, you, what I wanted. But, but you had to pick like, you at had the to end pick. of high school. That, that was the problem, yes. That's ridiculous. I had no idea what I wanted Which to was do the worst thing I shouldn't say that about the Iranian education system. I'm sorry if you're listening, but like... I don't know. I mean, nobody knows what they want to do. <laughs> I should I should say that point in the the education life. quality is one of the best. Yeah. Like the, what we learned like in high school. Yeah. So I after I finished my bachelor's, I came to the United States, and that's where I continued my education with masters and PhD and all that. But the the education, like what we learned, like in middle school and high school, when I came here, I was surprised that when I started uh, going to college here, the same thing that I was learning in college, I learned like in middle school back in Iran. So, so the oh, quality, that's pretty wild. quality was amazing <laughs> in terms of what we learned. But yeah. in terms of the fact that we were locked into a program, that was, I think, very, very bad. And yeah. Well, I guess I, I could see like the advantage in theory if you really know what you want to do that early on and you get that many years of developing that skill set, it's it's a tremendous advantage, hypothetically. Well, something interesting was yeah. that I started with of course that civil engineering program and I, I was kinda of locked into it. Yeah. Um I liked it, but that was not my passion necessarily. And I, I learned that after the first year or two. I started to attend classes from other programs like even though my my main program was <laughs> was civil engineering i was attending like neural networks um i'm seeing some of my own life here like that. <laughs> yes and um i actually created the first um i participated in robotics uh, competitions nice. and international uh, competitions and um, what kind of competitions building robots i mean i, I get and, that but like can, like explicitly, were you doing battle bots? Were you doing first? Were you doing like, so uh, like, like stuff to put a puzzle piece in a yeah, place? Yeah, it, like, it was more of a like sorting 
okay. um, problem solving that you had to be able to pick up like a soapbox and can like soda can or um, tennis ball and kind of separate them and put them in a, in a... So you had to build like some kind of a classifier. Like, I mean, it was probably rudimentary. Like you looked at the color. No, it was interesting. Yes, the, the way I approached it was actually I created like a mechanical system that depending on the oh, properties cool. of the objects. That's so at awesome. that point, I didn't have any knowledge of like how to do a, build a classifier or something yeah. using software, but... I mean, just the weight or the shape. Like that's, yes. that's really neat. Yeah, that was... So, so that was that, like my first kind of robotic... How he chose yeah. it, I don't know if you've taken his class, but he does the... Not the class, but... He, I took his class, I was an undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh, and I ended up doing computer science because that's where I got the most support early on. And, I mean, I haven't programmed in a decade, like I said. You know, I, I don't... I think that was my civil engineering. And so I, um, I would enroll in as, like, as many robotics courses and mechatronics mm -hmm. courses as I could cross-register in at Carnegie Mellon and... You know, I started doing what you did, you know, and tried to figure out ways in to this other field that I didn't discover as early on. Uh, and this is a byproduct of the American education system, yes. so I don't think it's unique to Iran. But I, um, I'm realizing I, uh, oh, okay. So back to back to what I brought up with how he chose his class. So he had his first assignment. He would do these like labs that were pretty arduous, but the first one was a Rube Goldberg assignment. So you were supposed to um, like. He would have us dumpster dive and find like plywood and like garbage essentially and build what you're describing, which is like solving a problem using like ropes and tennis balls and sure. like old mechatronics, but very janky. <laughs> so those are great experiences yeah. that kind of makes your brain just come up with like innovative kind of approaches. Yeah. To well, that was, that was like your baseline. And then all the other assignments were like starting to get more into like classical robotics thinking. And so it was, it was an interesting contrast. I, I think you're right. Like, I think it is, it is a good baseline to have. And um, yeah, I could, uh, I could kiss the man for that. <laughs> so thank you, Howie. <laughs> yeah. But, but kind of that, that started the journey and, um, kind of one thing led to another thing. But at the end of the day, I always wanted to have my own company and be able to make decisions to be able to make a difference. And yep. kind of, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what was the reason that I chose this exact path. But I can, I can say that if I think back to like 20 something years, I always had the aspiration of being able to do something that can have a lasting difference. And, and um, kind of time passed and kind of it shaped itself. And um, of course, when, when I started my uh, research in the PhD program, um, I was doing a lot of soul searching and kind of trying to find something that I really like. I started actually with quantum uh, computing. Oh, interesting. So, so for, a, for a year or two, um, I was researching quantum computing and um, I didn't really find <laughs> lasting impact in, in that space, at least yet. But I've been always passionate about the human brain, the biology and the nature, how it brings things together. And yeah. then naturally my uh, desire for robotics and computer science and all that, it kind of came all together to 
to focus on artificial general. I mean, I can actually kind of see a parallelism, like pun intended, between quantum computing and what you're doing now, because they're both massively parallel by nature. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that influenced you in any way, but it almost seems like there might be a thread there. There has been some, you some drew areas a line that and I found like, this some, is another some way. overlaps. Okay. Right. But the, the state of the technology and science in that space is still theoretical kind of theoretical evolving like especially at that time like it goes back like 10 12 years ago um we didn't have like some of these uh it's theoretical like, until it isn't yeah <laughs> like now we have some some solutions that you can at, at least have like some playground like i think ibm and google and a couple of companies they have some some cloud solutions that you can you can log in and try some uh, is that true quantum computing though, or is that still emulation of quantum computing? A lot of it is emulation, but um, D, um, D Wave, um, that, that's one of the companies that they, they do, I think, annealing um, approach. Um, what is the annealing approach with I, I respect? Think, I haven't been uh, following the. So, <laughs> so I'm going to be. Um, definitely inaccurate in whatever I say because um, my knowledge from from the um, quantum computing space is from 12 years ago oh good man <laughs> yeah so yeah. I kind of put that aside and then started focusing on um, artificial so general long ago I coded and, yes <laughs> but AGI has been fascinating me and uh, narrow AI even though amazing and pro solves problem i think agi is where we can we can actually take a lot of benefit from the societal impact of, of yeah. robots like service robots is, is is the space that we really think we can make a difference in people's lives in terms of assisted care and um neuroville's mission is actually to develop technologies that we can enable robots that we can we can have live alongside people and they yeah. can help them especially elderly and people in need. Um, Have you seen Asher yet? No. It, it's the Amazon.com robot. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. It's surprisingly cute and, and fun. The one with the tablet in front? Like yeah, and it's got like two the, wheels that are maybe yes. like eight inches in diameter. I saw the ad, but not really. Some of my friends got one recently, and it was it was surprisingly fun to interact with. So the party pieces are this that it can do. So one is... You can say it has good facial recognition, it seems. Mm. So you can say, find Muhammad, and it'll like look around until it like encounters you. And then it'll be like, I found him. <laughs> Whatever it does you can use it as a security system. That's uh, another thing that they're well. pitching it as. And then it's also got a periscope on it. So it has this thing mm. that acts like a telescope and antenna on the top. Oh, it raises and... Yeah, exactly. And it's got two cameras that are one atop the other with like uh, a four LED, like high powered LED for illumination. And I guess you can use that to like check if your stove was left on or something. Mm. And so there's, there's some interesting features there. And then it, it seems to have a decent slam. So, and then it'll like hang out in like different rooms of your house. So it'll like go to one place and hang out there for a bit and then go somewhere else. And then it's got like fun facial yeah. expressions. It's, it's cute. Uh, for like $1,400, I think. <laughs> so it would be interesting to see when we can transition from cute to functional. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, that's really difficult. That, that's really difficult. I concur. I, uh, 
go yeah. back decades that that has been kind of well, I mean it's it's cheaper than a cat <laughs> like to its credit how much is it I mean $1,400 $1,400 I guess I haven't well I mean the amount I spend on food for my cat and like vet bills I'm like yeah it's probably cheaper than a cat like a cat's like a grand a year so I don't know in that regard it's it's successful <laughs> so. No, there, there's been a lot of um, companies that they've been coming up with great solutions in terms of like um, companion robots and kind of um, with children like uh, Dusty is one of them or... Isn't Dusty like a floor marking robot or am I thinking of a different Dusty? Is that like... No, it's like a name. small doll. Like a... So there's another company called Dusty Robotics that makes like a floor marking robot for... Ah, not that one. Yeah, um, commercial spaces. Yes. So, but... so many of them, um, and keep keep new ones are keep coming out. But um... the, it's it's interesting that these overloaded. There's two robots that I know of that are also both named Moxie. And Moxie, yeah, not the. Which yes. Moxie are you thinking of? There's a Moxie, I think one and two, like two versions. Oh, there's there's two separate companies. One oh, is one there? is M O X I, and the other one's M O X I E. Uh, and they're totally different robots. It's difficult. <laughs> so one's one's like a cute robot for kids and like autistic people, I think, which is probably the one probably you're bringing that's up. That's the one that yeah. I'm thinking about. Yes. And then the other one, and it's got like it kind of almost looks like a Cabbage Patch Kid. Oh, not that one. Okay. Well, there's another one that has like it, like two eyes and it like has like a head and the head. Is discreet. that the one for like a healthcare settings? I believe so. Okay. Is that the one you're thinking of? Well, now I recall this. This uh, both of them now actually. Yeah. Yes. But it's just it's just weird that people are converging on the same name. I don't know. Yeah. It's not that weird. I guess it's a good name. Yeah. Naming is difficult. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I had a guy add me on LinkedIn recently who said that he specialized in coming up with cool names. Hmm. Uh, and I, I won't name him <laughs> explicitly. But it was just a weird friend request to get. It's like, I specialize in coming up with sweet names for stuff. <laughs> and he had like a name that sounded like, did you watch like The Simpsons? Did you see like the, like the Max Which Powers one? episode where like I Homer changes so, his name no. to Max Powers? <laughs> like, and so, I think that's what happens. It's been a while since I've watched it, but he comes up with like a cool sounding mm. name and all these doors open up for him. And um, this guy had a name like that. Like it was like his name was like he probably changed it to that because it was a weird, interesting name. Mm. But also, like, I don't know that I want to. Yeah, names can make things memorable. Yeah. And I, I'm personally I horrible with remembering yeah, names. Yeah, fair and, enough. Um, as you saw, I was um, thinking about Moxie and saying Dusty and... That's a good point, but Moxie's a good name. Yeah, that's a good so name. So my point is I pay this guy all this money, he comes up with a name, and then like people still don't remember it. Like, why? Like, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> do that with a whiteboard and, yeah. you know, like enough time on our hands. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm just being like typically, you know, stingy uh, startup founder person, you know. No. I we can do that ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, it's amazing how um, it becomes important in terms of the branding and, of course. How did you come up with the name Noraville? <laughs> it was a process. It was a process for sure. Like, um, 
me the geek that I am, I created a mind map with all these different options that nice. could be possible and kind of thinking about like a name that is not tied to a specific product because I've seen a lot of companies like, I don't want to name names, but like you see a lot of companies that they, they come up with a product and they name the company the product and um, eventually they become bigger and they come up with new products and then they have to rename the name to something different then so i mean the obvious one is alphabet right like sure like yeah with, with google alphabet or facebook and everybody yeah meta and, but everybody still calls um, google alphabet kudos to microsoft keeping the same name yeah. um <laughs> but but with neuroville or sorry everybody still calls alphabet google i should say my apologies yeah. everybody still calls meta facebook sure it, uh, it, it would take time and and even though you change the name it, it can cause confusion and so that that was one of the considerations when i was thinking about the name that i was even though i had a product name in mind um my vision for the company was much more broader so i was looking for something that like neuroville is kind of having that neuro village kind of encompassing thing that you you can kind of become a an environment for neuroscience to grow and kind of um so i was looking for something that is meaningful it's broad it's it's not specific to something and it's future proof um kind of yeah. yeah so so that was kind of the hope you like it yeah i do <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is that, so, so when, I, when I came up with the name, um, I was still in Kansas. And when I moved to, to Pittsburgh, I noticed the ending with Veal is so popular here. Like, there's so many cities and streets ending Bridgeville. with Veal, like Bridgeville and Neville and like many different kind of... Yeah. It is kind of funny that you're on Neville. And that is, yes. I didn't and, even and, think about that. Yes, and exactly. Like, just... Missing a couple of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah, kind of happy with the name. Um, Maybe at some point Neville can become Neuroville. <laughs> <laughs> they renamed the street to, to yeah. our company's name. Yep, to to fit the company that made it on the map. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah. So, I guess. And forgive me if this is too intrusive and obviously you don't have to answer this, but suppose, you know, you build the company over the next five years and you get to a point where you're looking to build the next product. What would you pivot to? And I realize this is kind of a far out question that you probably can't answer accurately. <laughs> Not like, really. I, I guess right now I have plans for the next 20 years for the company. So. For the next 20 years? <laughs> okay, so, cool. Not, not that I can talk about. Yeah, fair enough. I figured. <laughs> but but I, I, I kind of, um, I don't know. I, I really think that if you have a vision that you want to accomplish, you need to have like a long-term goal. Yeah. And um, now... I guess I was joking about not being able to talk about, it, but yeah. so so our goal is is uh, building assisted care solutions and technologies, and specifically in the area of robotics to be able to help people, and um, that is something very difficult to accomplish, and um, it would be at least a decade and a half or so for us to be able to get to that point. So so that is kind of a longer term goal that we are. Um, 
kind of positioning ourselves toward. But, but short term, we are kind of building this platform that I talked about to, to be able to enable people to be able to use neuroscience principles to be able to develop uh, brains for robots. But that is going to become the foundation for creating the next generation of robots that hopefully would revolutionize the field of service robotics. Yeah. Um, one of the areas that I always think about is that like, um, iPhone came along and kind of transformed um, phones yeah. forever. Um, Everybody's trying to be an iPhone now. Nobody's got buttons on their phone anymore. <laughs> yes. Uh, personal computing uh, kind of uh, experienced that in early eight. Uh, Ain't seen a mainframe for a while. Yeah, like um, <laughs> transition from mainframe to personal computing was, was a pivotal moment in early 80s. Um, I think we are yet to see that happening for robotics, special service robots. And we are That's planning to be... Um, well, you sort of see things in robotics that change the field forever, right? So, I mean, on a, on a small scale, I feel like, um, for instance, people use sonar a lot less now that LiDAR is mm -hmm. a thing. Um, when we think robotics came out with Baxter. It originally used series elastic actuators to mm -hmm. try to keep from bumping into people. And I mean, series elastic actuators are cool academically, but they're not super duper practical and you don't mm -hmm. see them very often. And I mean, I guess you see them sometimes, but like they've got, you know, specific things they're good for. And I don't think that's necessarily one of them. And then they came out with Sawyer but you are at this point was competing with them and both used current sense to try to detect, you know, a load coming against it. And as a result of that, without having to worry about the inertia of the arm tripping up the pot on the series elastic actuator and the encoder, I don't know how they implemented it. Um, and, you know, causing it to slow down and, and come into a harmonic with its own control algorithm, like, you know, they were able to move a lot faster. And so, you know, that became the paradigm for cobots. And now you're seeing like smarter sensors that look at the envelope of where robots at and it can move even faster because, you know, I mean, inertia still trips, you know, that, that system and, and you can pair a traditional robot with an area sensor and create cobots in that mm. sense. And it seems like, you know, FANUC is like leaning into that for like another generation. And there's startups that are creating different iterations on that and versions. And so I, mean, I think you see it. Like maybe I'm, I'm butchering this. And if an automation person wants to correct me, please send all complaints to podcast.ska.solutions. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you see it just on, on more of a micro scale maybe. And in different yeah, areas. Um, like soft robots. Um soft robotics is, is another space that well, like, kind of that's evolving again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's a great example. Yeah. And um, the hardware is going to continue to evolve. And of course, um, the software has to kind of be able to combine with it, like to be able to, I think one of the challenges in robotics is to be able to take advantage of everything that the hardware can do. So, so hardware kind of sets some limits depending on how you put the hardware together. Of course, there are some hard limits, but... Are you talking about compute hardware or like a physical robot No, no, the physical, physical degrees yeah. of freedom and like yeah. what, what a robot can do. But 
it's the control system that is responsible for taking advantage of the full capacity of the hardware. So, so look at the human body, for example. Like, you see um, what amazing things people can do. Like, when you look at athletes, when you look at dancers and um, people who do amazing things with their bodies. And so, so it's kind of the mind, the power of the mind that we have that through practice and kind of thinking and... Um, we can we can do all these amazing things. Yeah. We all share the same body, but not the same limits in terms of how we can use it. Um, so if we can enable the robots to be able to take full advantage of the hardware capabilities that they have, it, it would just um, opens up amazing opportunities. Because, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So <laughs> that would be that would be interesting to see how. Um, that transition can happen. And when I can see how the plasticity element of what you're doing would be conducive to that, at least in theory at this point. Yeah, and... Um, Probably in practice at a future point, <laughs> or a current point. I don't know where... <laughs> yes, we, we are using that right now, but, yeah. but that, that, that would be one of the... But I mean, you know, like... I mean, hypothetically, at least from the way I'm thinking about it, if, if you can... If your algorithm can adapt and take advantage of bits of compute that wouldn't be apparent to a human programmer. I mean, or, or I guess uh, hardware computational resources, like, you know, this core over here that nobody thought to use, or, you know, this bit of RAM over here that nobody thought to use, or these registers, and you can spread out and, you know, take full advantage. I mean, that's, that's a tremendous edge. I don't know if that's what you're advocating for, but it seems to be. Sort of. So, so we're taking actually programming out of, robotics. A lot of people don't like that necessarily, but um, not that there's anything wrong with programming. Like for, for many industries, I think for manufacturing, for example, it's an essential part of it. But I think there's another space that you can completely get rid of the programming and, and have a system uh, kind of unified, like the, the, the biological brain that can can merge all these sensory information, you can have that fusion of information, and the processing can take advantage of the entire system um, resources. And um, I think that uniformity of the architecture can, can be very, proved to be very beneficial. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. I'm not going to pretend to fully understand it yet because <laughs> I'm a peon. <laughs> understand it ourselves yeah. and build it up. It, yeah. it's, it's very complex and difficult, of course. And um, what's joyful the most, uh, especially for, for myself, is that we, we are kind of blessed with working with so many bright people. It just. Oh, that's what I love about Pittsburgh. It, it's just amazing that. Yeah. Um, Pittsburgh, in one hand, of course, it offers that uh, to the fullest, but but as a whole, the the kind of space that you're working in, in, in terms of robotics and neuroscience, and you just get to meet the brightest of people, and kind of it's very rewarding to to be able to uh, collaborate with people and just do something amazing. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. That's why I love making this podcast. Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. I think thank, it's very valuable. Thank you for for saying that and for listening and for being on it. Like I, it's it's a fun medium and I've been enjoying it. 
So no, I think yeah. that's that's amazing. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> How amazing <laughs> it is, but it's definitely <laughs> enjoyable. Definitely, we are um, open for collaboration, and um, the space that you're tackling is so broad that uh, honestly, we can we cannot tackle everything on our own. Actually, we decided to open source everything that we have developed so far. Oh, that's cool. And um, I can say over 95% of what we've done so far, we made it Apache 2 licensed and it's available for free for everyone. To okay, so I have follow-on questions here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sorry. <So I'll> plug. <laughs> uh, I, I apologize for derailing your plug. <laughs> no, it's um, okay. <laughs> I was just going to ask, has that resulted in like a greater developer base working on, on your, your code base? That definitely helps because especially working with academia, um, we, we really need engagement from, from many different disciplines. And um, having like a closed source and trying to build everything on our own, um, first of all, it would be just commercialization and trying to make money. But... Um, as a company, our, our goal is to be able to make a difference. Yeah. And um, I think the money would follow regardless. I think if you do a good job in something, prosperity and things like that comes. But yeah, that, that's not the important thing. If, if you really think, if you really can do something that can make a difference, then, then uh, that's the most valuable thing. So, so because of that, um, we have it open source so people can can take advantage of it, can use it. Um, and in the future, we are going to um, build on top of what we have and be able to add extra services and uh, incorporate it into some many other technologies. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And um, that, that, that's part of it, basically, that... I, I encourage any any collaboration. From How do people get in, uh, a hold of your Git or like into your code base and, and work on it? Sure, sure. So um, what we have is called, so the platform that we built is called Figi, F-E-A-G-I. Uh, -E it's, it's standing for Framework for Evolutionary Artificial General Intelligence. Cool. F-E-A-G-I. So um, if you go to GitHub uh, and go to just GitHub slash Figi, you can you can get to the code base. F-E-A-G-I? F-E-A-G-I. If you go to figi.org, actually that's the open source website that we have. And uh, from the neuroville.com, you can you can get to our open source website as well. But cool. um, I encourage people to follow us on LinkedIn. That's where we post all follow the Follow Neuroville on LinkedIn? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> So that's where we post all the updates that we have and um, share the progress uh, primarily right now uh, in LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah, LinkedIn's a great medium for business-to-business -business comms. Like, I, I really like it, and it's the only social media I'm on at the moment. It is the least crack-like out of all of them, and I am a fan. It's a very valuable platform. I think that... that makes I mean, that's where you and I met each other, I'm pretty sure. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's how we met each other. And, um, and I met so many amazing people uh, from all over the world. Like um, I had people reaching out from France and India and um, Canada and many different places that we, we met and they've been interested in just learning something. And um, I'm always looking forward for those kind of uh, conversations. Awesome. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today. If you made it this far, chances are you'll like other episodes too. Collaborative with Spencer Krauss is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Subscribe today to get notified when the latest episodes release and support the channel. Collaborative with Spencer Krauss is sponsored by SKA Custom Robots and Machines. If you're in the market for robotics contract engineering services, please consider hiring SKA Custom Robots and Machines. They sponsor this podcast and they solve some of the